You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. At this time, we want to dismiss our children's to children's church. So if you have uh, children, second grade or younger, we have uh, programming for them uh, in our children's wing, and uh, you can actually take them at this time. So, happy Thanksgiving. This was an amazing weekend for my family. Uh, For those of you who don't know, um, I married my, (laughs) here come the tears again, Uh, my oldest son this weekend, and uh, God was just extremely gracious to us. Thank you for your prayers, all of you who prayed that I could get through it without without, uh, losing it. Uh, Lost it a few times, but didn't ruin the ceremony. Uh, So... And I had the privilege of having family come from just all across the country. There are many here this morning, too many to introduce to you, um, but they're from California, Washington, Tennessee, Iowa, Florida. Uh, we've pretty much covered, covered the country and uh, just enjoyed a, a beautiful, beautiful weekend. So we truly are blessed, aren't we? Isn't it nice that we pause once a year to just kind of remember you know, all that God's done for us? We were reflecting um, around the table today. Uh, when we were getting ready to head over to my brother's for Thanksgiving, and uh, just remembering that if you own a car, you are among the 5% wealthiest people in the world. And most of us are probably among the 2% wealthiest. And so when we sit down and give thanks for all we have, those are, those are valid reasons. But when we start to reflect on the spiritual blessings we have, and how much we have been given as a people in this country to be able to worship God freely and have so much access to tools and resources to study the Word of God, we are just beyond measurely blessed. Have you ever sat as you reflect on the gospel and thought, you know, why doesn't everybody see this as good news? Because there really isn't any better news, is there? Then the God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, the sustainer of all things, loved you and me enough to come to earth, live a perfect life, die on the cross for your sin and mine, so that by simple faith alone in the work that he has done for us, we can be reconciled to God and enjoy a personal relationship with him. And the scripture is really clear, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. And yet you still have so many people who hear that and are reluctant to embrace it. And I think part of it is just in our nature. Have you heard the old saying or the adage, if it's too good to be true, what? It's probably not true. So people hear the gospel and intrinsically as broken people, we think we must earn our way to God. That it, it can't be by grace alone. And so we hear the message and we skeptically say, oh, you know, I don't know about that. And so they continue to try to work or earn favor with God. And then even more tragically, as those who have come to faith, they understand, you know, I can't save myself, so I'll accept the work Christ has done. But in growing up in my faith, there I have to, I have to put my hands to the plow. I have to have some role in that. We fail to recognize not only are we saved by grace, but we grow in our faith by grace alone. It is all God, not us. Now, here's why I say all that. Because when we come to faith, all of us come to faith 
with minds that need to be renewed. We have thinkings, thinking, we think certain ways about ourselves, about God, about the world that we live in. We've developed paradigms, mental models about how the world works. And a whole lot of those are inaccurate. And yet a paradigm has a way, if it's true, of speeding us to accurate conclusions, but if it's false, of actually blinding us to what's right in front of us. And these are the areas, these unrenewed, broken parts of who we are that false teachers will seek to exploit for personal gain, to build their own kingdom rather than God's kingdom. And this is the situation we find Paul addressing in, uh, in Crete as he writes Titus. There are false teachers who, again, adding to the gospel, and he is telling uh, Titus, you need to call these guys out because what they're doing is destructive to the movement and the work in the kingdom of God. And so many times we fail to recognize in our own lives and even in the lives of others how hard it is to move beyond the thinking that we had when we came to faith. Because the power of a paradigm, we could spend all morning talking about that, but how many of you see the arrow in the FedEx symbol? Or the first time that you've recognized it, you know, there's an arrow there? Because our, our paradigm is we're looking at letters, not symbols. And it can be right in front of us and we can miss it. And sometimes the message can be absolutely clear and we miss it because our minds have not been renewed by the Word of God. And that's why Paul says in Romans, you know, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? By the renewing of the mind. And we renew our mind with sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is what aligns us with truth, is what reveals for us what God has really done and who God really is and who we are in Christ. And yet it is so difficult for us to let go of things that we have concluded and that we bring to faith with us. So open your Bibles with me, if you would, to Titus chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 10 through 16 this morning. And I've entitled this message, Spiritual Con Artists. Spiritual Con Artists. Paul writes these words. He says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Pray with me if you would. Lord Jesus, thank You for the truth that You have provided us in Your Word. Holy Spirit, we pray that You would open our eyes to all that You would have us see and receive this morning, that we may not be deceived by false teachers and those who are using religion for personal gain. So, Lord, we truly are blessed, and we ask you to just uh, pour out more upon us this morning as we look to you for direction for life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
when Paul had just finished laying out the qualities or the characteristics of spiritual leaders in the church. And he basically said this, they are to be people of strong character and a strong commitment to sound doctrine, to the truth. Then he moves from holding up what an elder in the church looks like to contrasting that to false teachers and prophets who'd found their way into the church and were misleading people. And it's really almost just the opposite. These people, instead of having character, were just characters that shouldn't be trusted. And if you're outlining this morning, we're looking at the passage this way. Paul addresses how to recognize false teachers in, verses, uh, in verse 10, how to rebuke false teachers, 11 through 14, and things to remember about false teachers, uh, verses 15 and 16. So how to recognize false teachers. Paul kind of weaves the deceptive qualities of these false teachers all the way through the text, but he starts off by saying, these, by saying this about them. He says, for there are many who are subordinate. So as you look for false teachers, what he's saying is this, is you really don't have to look that far. There's a lot of them out there. Now that's tragic, but true. And in Paul's day, he's saying, look, you don't have to look real hard to find people who haven't grounded themselves in sound doctrine. Now let's, pause, let's step back for a minute and realize what's taking place. There's this huge paradigm shift that's taking place in the church. They had the Old Testament. The New Testament had not been given to them. The letters from the apostles are starting to flow, and they're trying to discern truth. The Spirit of God has come, and it's entered people, and they're trying to work through everything that they have thought and hold it up against everything that they're beginning to hear about Jesus and about truth. And so I think sometimes we can almost be too hard on them because we're not that much different than them in being willing to let go of things that we've believed that God is saying, you know what, that needs to change. And in, in this day, we just finished studying Colossians, and there were all kinds of people that were holding up things. And in this text, it's really the Judaizers once again. And imagine how hard it was for this group of people, God's chosen people who had been given the law, and they had chapter and verse for what they believed with the sacrificial sacrifices and the, and the dietary laws. And they had put their hope and trust in that to, to be a significant part of how they built a relationship with God and honored Him and worshipped Him. And they had become dear to their hearts. And now the apostles come along and they say, hey, guess what? Christ has fulfilled the law and all that you have trusted has been changed. That's hard. And so there were a whole lot of people that were teaching, you know, it's Jesus and this style of worship and this understanding of dietary laws and Gentiles. And so Paul's saying, hey, you don't have to look too far for people who are distorting the doctrines, the sound doctrine. And here's what's important, though. There were a lot of them, but when it comes to discerning sound doctrine, it's not a democratic process. It doesn't matter how many people line up and say something's true if it doesn't align with Scripture. That's the only thing that really matters. And when you study the Scripture, you're really working through trying to get to what's the original intent of the author. What has the Holy Spirit said through that man that he wants to preserve for us today? And then how does that apply to life today? And you got to be really careful because there are all kinds of people that can take the Scripture, and when they're willing to take Scriptures out of context, you can make the Bible say almost anything. 
And just like in Paul's day, there's an awful lot of false teachers out there. You can turn on the radio and you can turn on the television, and if you aren't hugely discerning, you're going to hear all kinds of doctrine that isn't sound, that's trying to lead you into a religious system more than into a deepening of your relationship with Christ. And we're going to talk about the danger of that and how that affects you and your spirituality and your vitality and why it's so important that false teachers get called out and get called out directly in this. So Paul begins by saying, hey, false teachers, there's many of them. They kind of abound. And then he goes on and he says this. He says, not only is there many of them, but these are rebellious people. You can, you can recognize them because they are people who don't want to submit to authority. These are the guys that will go out on their own and start a ministry and put everything that the ministry owns in their name. You know, because when it looks at it, it all really becomes about them and their perspective and their understanding of Scripture, and they are wanting to get people to embrace their views and systems and processes. So today we have all kinds of these individuals. And there are many who are deceiving people with, Paul says, you know, in Colossians, flattery words. Here he just basically says that they're, they're good talkers. And so what are they saying that's leading so many away? We've talked about the, the, the Jewish tradition and how deeply rooted it was in the culture of that day amongst the Jewish people. But I don't think we realize just how strong it was at work and how people were able to take the Old Testament law and scriptures and actually lead people astray. If you turn to Galatians chapter 2, we want to see that Peter was rebuked by Paul because he had actually fallen prey to some of these persuasive arguments. And there was beginning to be a level of hypocrisy in his life, and, and, and Paul is calling him out. And in Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, we read these words. He says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Those are pretty strong words. He says, man, when he came and I saw him, you know, it's like immediately. It's like, Peter, come here. You know, we have got to talk. Because there are some things going on that are really unhealthy and inconsistent with that, what you even believe. And so it goes on. And he says, when James, <clears throat> and he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So this group of false teachers, they had developed a pretty strong influence in the early church. It goes on, and it says, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? I'm going to summarize for you. It's basically saying this, hey, the goal is not to make people good Jews, it's to make people like Jesus. And you're focused more on making them to look Jewish than like Christ. And he says it's got to stop because you're actually adding to the gospel. Now, can you imagine, wouldn't you love the eavesdropped on that conversation? 
Peter comes in, Paul sees him, he says, hey, hey, you know, come here, bro. We got to talk. He says, hey, the last time I came through town, I th- I'm sure I smelled bacon on your breath. He says, now James come to town and you're popping certs like there's no tomorrow because you're wanting to fit in with this group of people and oscillating Gentiles who'd come to faith. And he's saying, this is wrong. He says, don't you remember the word that Jesus gave you? Don't you remember the vision you heard? Don't you understand the danger of adding anything to the gospel message that makes anybody think that they have to do anything other than trust Christ alone and his work for them to come to faith and to grow in their relationship with God? He says, don't you understand that you're adding to the gospel and that can be deadly? He goes on, and we'll look at this, and he says, of first importance, I've defined for you the gospel. And why is it of first importance? Because if Jesus is the cornerstone of our faith, and the gospel is the foundation, because anything you build on a false foundation will have trouble. If you start to see your walls cracking in your house, you got trouble. And if that trouble's in the foundation, it's a big problem, because The foundation determines what will be built upon it. And if you get the foundation wrong, nothing is going to be secure that's built on it. And so it all starts with a clear understanding of the gospel message. And there are so many preachers then and now that have an agenda. In that day, they wanted them to look Jewish. In our day, they may want them to look Baptist, Presbyterian, Pentecostal. More than what? Like Jesus. More than Christian. And we divide into our sects and we develop our systems of thought and theologies to reinforce what we think the Christian is supposed to look like. And the problem is this, is the clearer you become with the gospel, the cleaner the life will become. And here's our problem. We teach lordship, salvation, and all these kind of things because we want the Christians to look a certain way. We believe that works are important, but it's important for us to realize that works are the fruit of your faith, not a part of the foundation of your faith. And when you make works a part of the foundation of what you believe, you're leading people astray because nothing can be added to the gospel and the gospel hold the power that God intends it to have. And Paul is saying, there's all kinds of people who are going to talk persuasively and they're going to deceive you into thinking that you need something other than Jesus himself. And don't listen to them because they're not actually workers of God. In the end of this text, he says they're good for, they're, they're good for no good work. He says you need to ostracize them. You can't even give them anything to do because they're dangerous. They're a cancer to the body, and we'll talk about how he wants to deal with them because it's significantly important to understand how you deal with these deceivers. And the deception had grown so deep in some of these, and these people were reaching for ways to authenticate their messages. And so part of what they were doing is taking the Old Testament scriptures and allegorizing them to look more spiritual than everyone else. And some of that, or an example of that, is they would take the word Abraham, and they would remove the vowels. And in the Hebrew language, every Hebrew letter correlates to a number. And so if you took the word Abraham, it would, those numbers would add up to 318. And so they were teaching people that every time you read the word Abraham, you were really referring to 318 prophets of God. 
And then through a system that they would develop, they recognized who those prophets were. And then they would work to try to tie their genealogy to one of those prophets to lift their own authority and credibility in the minds of the people. And so Paul's saying, he says, don't buy into these myths and this deception that's being taught you, regardless of how it sounds. Hold true to the truth, to the purity of the gospel message. Now, in Crete, it was primarily the Judaizers. And Paul calls them out. He says they are of the circumcision party. That's an interesting way to refer to a group, isn't it? But it's pretty, it's pretty graphic. Because he's laying it out. He's saying, look, be, be careful around these people. Because they have had a tendency to have trouble letting go of the law and God's role in it. So false teachers add to the gospel. And Paul is saying, don't let that happen. In 1 Corinthians 15, he defined for the, us for the gospel. He says this, For I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried and he was raised and on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. The gospel is simply the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is your faith and trust in that work on your behalf that saves you. Period. Nothing else is required. And Paul is saying there are a list of people who are making their own lists as to what they think is required for you to be saved. And in the Jewish community, it was those who were attaching people to the law. And what they failed to understand was really the power of grace. Because grace changes your heart towards rules and regulations. <clears throat> There's a story told of a woman who was married to a very, very uh, controlling and abusive man. Every morning, he would tell her when to get up, what to make him for breakfast, and before he left for work, he would, he would make a list of things that he wanted her to have done before he got home. And so the relationship wasn't full of much joy. She served him out of obligation. She did what she wanted to try to keep peace in the house, and suddenly the man died. A few later, years later, she met another man, and this was a gracious, kind man, and uh, they married. And one day, a few years after she had been married, she was cleaning up and she found one of the old lists that her previous abusive husband had made for her to do. And when she read the list, she realized that she was doing this very same things that her abusive husband has asked, but now doing them out of a heart of graciousness and gratitude. And see, that's the work that God does in our hearts. When preachers start with the rules and say, hey, this is what God requires of you. This is how you're supposed to live. <clears throat> we begrudgingly take them on because we want to honor God. But when a preacher starts where God begins with the gospel of grace, 
we find ourselves willingly embracing the boundaries that God set for our lives and seeing ourselves transformed. And it doesn't matter if you keep the rules if your heart isn't doing it. It's like Billy was talking about giving. God says, be a cheerful giver. You can give and not honor God because it's not the act itself. It's the condition of the heart. And it's grace that makes us generous, joyful givers. Because we've understood all that God's done for us and that we don't have to do anything out of obligation, but we get to, we don't have to. And that's a world of difference. That's law and love. And that's what Paul is addressing because he's getting to the very heart of his concern that if the goal isn't the clarity of the gospel, it will confuse the maturation process. And so he lays this foundation of how you recognize these people. There's many of them. They're smooth talkers. They're deceivers. And in the, Cret in the Cretan situation, they were people of, uh, of Jewish descent. Then he goes forward and he addresses, well, what do you do with these false teachers? What do you do with people who are confusing the gospel or adding to it? And in verses 11 through 14, he says this. He says, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful game and what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths or the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Paul basically says this, leaders in the church, you can't be lazy about dealing with false teachers. It needs to be done directly and it needs to be done definitively. And he starts by giving reasons to rebuke false teachers. He says this, these false teachers are, are leading whole households astray. And in this text, he's probably not referring to a, a household as a family unit. He's probably referring to a house church. He's saying if you let this go, there are entire bodies of believers that are being brought into bondage rather than the freedom that God has called them to, and that's dangerous and destructive. And it's part of your job to prevent that and to protect the flock from these false prophets and teachers. And so he says, you need to address this because it will grow if you let it go. And that can't happen. And then he says, they are ministering with false motivation. And so their motivation was to advance their system of theology, their ideas, their thinking. And as much as they thought it was true, Paul says, hey, this is dangerous because they're ministering for personal gain. And whether that personal gain was to put money in their own personal profits, pockets or to advance their movement. But the whole point is this, is there are resources going to works that aren't about the gospel. He says, when you get involved in supporting these false teachers, you're actually working against what God is wanting to do in the world. You're not helping build the kingdom. And so be very careful where you send your money. Because there are a whole lot of people that can hold up a lot of things that they're saying are great works, but if it's not rooted in truth, it's not profitable for the kingdom. <laughs> and so Paul says, for these reasons, 
deal with these teachers in a direct way. And it's really important that every time rebuke is brought, that it's done for the purpose, first and foremost, to reconcile them to truth. So Paul reads this. He says in verse 14, Let's go to 13. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. So Paul says, rebuke them. But before he talks about this rebuke, he says he reminds them who you're dealing with. Because in part of this is you just got to get real sometimes. Because here's the truth. You've got these false teachers and oftentimes they're very likable people. It's like, you know, this is a good guy, and if we go upset him, he's going to take that whole church, and they're going to leave. You know, maybe we should handle this a little bit more discreetly than just calling it out and saying what it is. And Paul comes back, and he says, hey, remember who you're dealing with. These are Cretans. And he quotes, he quotes one of their own poets who they highly respected, and he says, these people are liars and deceivers. And, you know, Patrick called them, you know, the biker the biker bunch last week, you know, this is kind of like Pirate's Cove. These were not honorable people. And they understood that. And so really what Paul's saying, he said, remember where you are and who you're dealing with? And he says, if these people are that way, imagine the kind of heresy that will grow out of that kind of crooked culture. And so he says, remember who you're dealing with and, and don't deny the reality of the issue and the people that you're having to deal with. And so he calls <coughs> Titus to call the elders to actually go rebuke these people. And the word rebuke is a strong word. It goes for the, the imagery is of a person wielding an axe with such force that it actually lops off entire limbs of a tree. And so the whole imagery he's saying is rebuke them. Is he says, you've got to cut them off. Completely. If they don't repent and, and respond to the gospel, he says there's no middle ground. They have to be put out of the church. And that's hard to do at times. Because sometimes in the body, these false teachers can integrate themselves real tightly with people and individuals. And this is where it takes enormous character as leaders to understand the importance of the spiritual surgery sometimes you're called to do with sound doctrine. It's not something to be played with. He goes on from there and he says, here's why you need to deal with it so severely. Because... People can grow in error, and error always produces bad fruit. People can grow in error. Look at verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure, but their minds and their consciences are defiled. Here's what's going on. Paul's saying, these false teachers are creating such confusion because Christ came to liberate and they are actually putting them back under law. And he says, to the pure, all things are pure. You have freedom in Christ. It's okay to dine with a Gentile. 
You can eat bacon. That's all right. And he's saying, but to the unpure, to the person who's put all of these rules and regulations on themselves, nothing is acceptable. You've got all of these rules and regulations that God isn't imposing on you, but here's where it becomes troublesome. If you believe the rules are of God, you begin to what? Corrupt your conscience. And that becomes really dangerous. Because once your conscience tells you that you are true, you are under obligation not to violate your conscience. And you begin to see how confusing this becomes in the church. I was talking to my mother last night at, uh, at the wedding, and I kind of told you, you know, I grew up in a house with a, with a few rules and regulations. And uh, we were watching my son dance and all the people having this great time. And I, I, I told my mom, I said, hey, do you remember that you made us sit out of square dancing in elementary school because we couldn't dance? And, and they, they just really believed that as a Christian, that was a bad testimony. And so, you know, I'm growing up believing that well, if I want to be a good Christian, I shouldn't what? Shouldn't dance. And where in the scripture does it tell us that? You know? And then to even go a step further, there was actually uh, wine. I said, man, we're drinking and dancing. <laughs> you know? Boy, for sure we're going to hell. Uh, but nowhere in the scripture does it say don't drink, but it says do not be drunk with wine. But you begin to see how, how traditions begin to bring rules and they begin to bring regulations and they put them upon you and they say, well, if you really want to be a good witness in your culture, you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that. And then we're so focused on the, on the shouldn'ts that, that the shoulds get lost. And the culture then concludes that being a Christian is something far different than what Christ has ever called us to be. And it becomes more about the rules and the regulations versus the relationship and who Jesus is. And we start debating all these secondary issues that doesn't allow the gospel to rise to the first importance that it is to hold in our declaration and understanding of the work of God. And this becomes so difficult because when your conscience is aligned with error, the fruit from your life is going to be flawed. So Paul points out the fruit in these individuals' lives. He says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. He says, when you confuse the gospel with any other thing than the grace of God and the work of God alone, he says, you may think you know God, but what's going to be shown in your life is going to prove that you really don't know him. Because the proof's in the what? The pudding. And how many Christians do you know that are just the biggest sour pusses? Man, warning. Because what? The joy of the Lord is our strength. Man, alive, you get around these Christians that are so focused on the rules, you know, they are just you know, complete party poopers. And that wasn't Jesus. 
know, it's kind of fun last night to remember, yeah, Jesus, you know, he was at a wedding, and that was his first miracle, and that miracle was turning water to wine, and uh, all in, you know, responsibility. But I think what Paul is warning about here is he's saying, look, these people who claim to know God, but you look at their life, and it really doesn't reflect the fruit of the Spirit, don't be drawn into following them. Because he goes on further, and he says some pretty hard words about actually what the fruit of their life is. And he says this. He says they're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So he's saying no matter how good they look, they're not people that you want to be a part of your ministry. So beware of the legalist. Beware of anyone who comes adding anything to the gospel, the good news that appears to be too good to be true, that it is by grace alone, plus nothing. And when anything is added, we should have little warning flags go up in our lives. So in concluding, do you remember the story of Little Red Riding Hood? <clears throat> Little Red Riding Hood's going through the woods to visit her grandmother. <clears throat> the big bad wolf gets to grandmother's house ahead of Little Red Riding Hood, crawls into bed, pretending to be grandma. So Little Red Riding Hood comes in, and uh, she sees the wolf dressed in grandma's bedclothes, and she's a little suspicious, so she begins to ask some questions. Grandma, <clears throat> what big ears you have? And the wolf responds, oh, the better to hear you, my dear. Sounds good, huh? But Grandma, what big eyes you have. Ah, oh, the better to what? See you. And Grandma, what big teeth you have. And then the wolf's revealed, the better to eat you. This is what false teachers do. They'll crawl their way into the church. They'll put themselves in a class. They'll draw you into a place that you think is supposed to be safe. This person's supposed to know the Word of God. And you start to ask questions because something doesn't seem to line up. And you got to be real careful because at some point, the teeth are going to come out and it's going to be revealed that it was more about them than Christ. What are the takeaways in this? So we have to be very careful who we expose ourselves to as far as teachers of the word. Because there are many, many, many false teachers out there. And today there are all kinds of avenues for people to tune in to those who claim to know God that are calling you more to a religious system than to a relationship. And they're calling you to give your money and your time and your talent to something that isn't necessarily advancing the kingdom. And it's as true today as it was in Paul's day. So be very careful who you listen to. Because if you attach yourself to false teaching, you can grow in the air of that teaching. And without even knowing it, you can begin to buy into the system and become a disciple of that message versus the pure message of the gospel. Oftentimes with the best intentions. Because it just seems right. God helps those who what? 
help themselves. That sounds like a good word. That's, that's heresy. We don't work for anything. We just become channels of God's grace and God's power. So the first warning is that be careful who you listen to. The second is this. Ground yourself in sound doctrine. Learn the word because it's only going to be <coughs> you're knowing the truth that will expose the lies of the false teachers that will protect you. Lean in to your, to your elders because they are the ones who have been charged by God to, to discern false doctrine. And then grow up in the faith in a healthy way so that you're not described as a detestable, disobedient, unfit person of any good works. Our hope is this, that we will be a church that boldly proclaims the gospel, the grace of God. Plus nothing, minus nothing, and our hope and prayer is that you will, from this pulpit, heard preach the word of God in context each and every week, seeking to understand what the Spirit of God has said through the author in that original intent, and then to draw that principle to practical application to our day and time. And tragically, there aren't a whole lot of churches like that these days. We've kind of steered away from wanting to teach the Bible because isn't doctrine boring? How will that pay the bills? Well, our confidence is this, that if we hold up Christ, Christ will be faithful to draw him into himself, that he will grow the church, and that we will become his instruments in the world to turn it upside down for his glory. And here's one of the lies that the evil one wants you to believe. That you're too broken to be an instrument of God's in the world. No, you're not. And we hope and we believe that as we surround ourselves with sound doctrine, that God will grow us up and we will become a force to change not only spring, but the greater Houston area that will take Texas and the world. And that in years to come, this won't just be things we're talking about, but it will be transformation that we're celebrating. But for that to become a reality, it's most important that we keep the gospel, as Paul says, of first importance. Because anything built on a foundation other than the gospel of grace will not produce godly fruit. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.